On this episode, we discuss the return of the Motorola Razr, Stadia updating its game lineup, and there's a new Ford Electric Mustang. We'll also discuss Microsoft getting rid of Cortana and how it kind of lives on. Finally, we give our first thoughts after a week of Disney Plus use. This and more in this week's show. I'm Josh Liston from On The Bubble Podcast, an oral history of television fandom, part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other awesome geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Stephen, Chris, and SP. Welcome to episode 310 of the official GunnaGeek.com show. I am Stephen John Drew here with an all new chair mat that you cannot see. And I'm pleased to say that Chris Farrell is here so that I can lay on the chair mat and he can walk over me. It's just to loosen your back up. You've had a sore back for days. So what better way to fix it than to have me drive drive up to Canada and come walk on your back? I, I think the only thing that would be better would be if Suncast, our guest this week, would do that. Yes, I could do that with, uh, let's see, I could get some shoes, stick a whole bunch of nails in them, and then just walk on your back. Just wear golf shoes. When I was a kid, I, I did this thing. I don't know why I decided to do it, but they had like this whole thing somewhere. I don't know if they were spinning it as a magic show or some form of science spin, but the concept was that they had a bed of nails and they needed a volunteer yep. to go on that bed of nails. And I was that volunteer. And then they took a they took a center block, put it on you, and then smashed it with a hammer. Uh, pretty much, pretty much, yes, exactly. And that's how Steven got twenty holes in his back. <laughs> it's acupuncture. Yep. If you didn't gather, SP is away this week, but we do have Suncast here. Thank you, Suncast, for coming on here this week. We do greatly appreciate you joining us. I know it was a little last minute. Do appreciate you coming on here. Hey, not a problem. Use his title. It's Deputy Director Suncast. I don't remember his title. I don't know why I don't remember it. But for those of you who are checking out the show for the first time, Suncast will take a moment here now to talk all about himself and where you can usually find him. Hold on a minute. I had to reprogram some coordinates for Steven's house. <laughs> no, uh, you can catch me on GFQ Network. I do all the stuff behind the scenes there, the website, editing stuff, doing videos. We've got Shows for wrestling fans called Mat Men. We got shows for tech fans called What the Tech with Paul Therat. If you like any of that stuff, check out gfqnetwork.com. And I hear there's also an awesome show called the official geek.com show that gets posted uh, four episodes twice a month because the producer's really bad at sending <laughs> it over. Yeah. I, I, heard yeah. It, I heard it about that. Somebody's a little bit lazy. Uh, apparently Ooh. so. I have never denied it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to the news. Here we go. Let's kick it all off this week with a news that's going to make 
one listener in our live chat room, which we do stream the show usually live on Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time at Geeks Live. This is going to make one listener very, very happy. So we all remember that back in like the early 2000s, there was this really cool phone. It was all about, you know, as thin as you can get phones those days called the Motorola Razor, right? Everybody loved these phones. They were they were inexpensive, super thin, super light, easy to carry with you. And status symbol was, all right, how thin is your phone? That's how it was in the early 2000s with cell phones. And that all kind of changed once I, the iPhone came out and everybody wanted smartphones with as screens as big as you can get. And well, nowadays, Motorola is back. Yes, they have the Razor and it's returning. So this is pretty cool. I actually saw a uh, tweet from Andrew Zarian about this. I looked it up and I'm like, this is actually really interesting. So there's the new Motorola Razor. It runs Android. It's got a sleek design that's engineered by Lenovo. And it has a Snapdragon 710 processor inside, 6 gigabytes of RAM, 128 gigabytes of internal storage, a 2,510 milliamp battery, and this is where it gets really interesting. The main screen is foldable and unfolds into a 6.2-inch POLED display with an aspect ratio of 21 to 9 and a resolution of 2,142 by 876 pixels. Yes, that's right. The Motorola Razr has a foldable screen. It's pretty cool if you haven't seen the video or any videos about this because it's like, they really did that? Because we're all thinking about, yes, Samsung foldable phone and all these other companies that are making foldable phones these days. Well, Motorola, Motorola has done the same thing now with the Razer. It's still a flip phone. Yes, it's still a flip phone. And when you flip it open, it has a screen. The whole thing is a screen that folds. It's really cool looking. So it also has a 2.7 inch display on the front, a 16 megapixel camera and a 5 megapixel internal camera and it also includes something that's really cool if you're a big fan of the retro razor it has what's called the retro razor mode on the device and that applies a classic razor ui to the entire device and so you're probably wondering all right well how much does this cost it's going to be inexpensive right oh mm. yeah of course not so much so this will be available for purchase in january of 2020 for the low price of $1,499. Yes, the same price as a Samsung foldable phone. <laughs> well, you know, I'd rather have this foldable phone than the Samsung one. Though. <laughs> I mean, it, it's pretty interesting. Nobody knew that they were doing this, and here it is. And quite frankly, is the Model Eraser going to win the foldable screen wars? Possibly. Here's the thing. Um, it probably got a lot of future ahead of it because as we all know, the original Razer was a very popular phone. And from everything I can see by this, they are just checking all of those original check boxes because it's overpriced, like the original Razer was. It's using a foldable display, which is questionable technology, which will probably break, like the original Razer used to always break. So <laughs> it seems like they've checked those boxes here. They've got it. But you know, if you want to get a folding phone, I think this is infinitely more satisfying than what we've seen from Huawei and uh, Samsung with the Note 6, not Note 6, the Galaxy Fold, rather, because 
this is a form factor we're kind of used to, and it, it's retro, but at the same time, you guys remember how satisfying that that was when you were on the phone with someone, you got really pissed off at them, and you just flipped the phone shut on them, and you're like, damn them, I'm done with them. Now it's back. You can flip that phone shut, and you can have that emphatic snapping noise as you do it. And the same thing with when you want to pick it open, you start to get that wrist flip just right so you can flip the phone open and do it. I've kind of missed that. I did enjoy that with the flip phone, and on a more secondary thing, maybe it actually helps protect the screen a little bit. When you put this in your pocket, unless something gets between those two screens and rubs, you're not getting it as easy so that keys or spare change rub on your screen like you would now with a smartphone. I'm intrigued, but I'm not $1,500 intrigued, <laughs> especially also when you consider the fact that the hardware that's in it, I'm paying $1,500 for a foldable screen with a battery that's eh in a Snapdragon processor that is not the cutting edge Snapdragon processor you're getting other folding phones and other flagship phones. So for that $1,500 premium, I don't know that I'd necessarily be getting my money's worth. It's cool. It's a great nostalgia trip. I enjoyed even more than when Nokia brought back the old brick phone that we all used to joke about being indestructible. This is cool. It's just for the price, it's not going to happen. Agreed. And I have to say as well that I think we're probably going to see more of these nostalgic type phones come this way. If, if, Motorola has any level of success with this, even if it's just to a very specific market, as long as we're not having that disaster that Samsung did, I think that this could lead to other possible flip phones of nostalgia nature, just because people like to do that. That's the thing that's in right now is such nostalgic tech. Yes. You know, BlackBerry could make a comeback. They could. Uh, which version though? Original like like BlackBerry or like the BlackBerry Pearl or which one? I have no idea. <laughs> I never had a BlackBerry. I had a curve. It was it was it was Ooh. good for the time, but it quickly got outdated. Yes. I still have my first BlackBerry here somewhere. It was I think a CDMA one. And then I did have a uh, a Pearl that I actually assembled together. Uh at the time there was a couple of different phones that were were being recycled by various places and I managed to repair it and make one phone out of, of several. And it was, it was kind of fun because the Pearl was such a thing at the time. And uh, that was kind of actually my first like experience where I really used the smartphone aspect because before with the original BlackBerry that I had, it was just so slow and it was of no use with the screen and the Pearl was, was nice. I enjoyed that. I'm just thinking about it. I think, you know, with everybody so uh, nostalgic for retro stuff these days, I think that's a real possibility now. Well, who knows? I don't know. Uh, mm. People do still miss that. Some people miss that little uh, physical keyboard, but I don't think that they're coming back. I, I don't think they're coming back. It's not It's not like Chris said, where you've got that bond with slamming the phone shut on somebody. I don't know. What what nostalgia do we have with the BlackBerry? The fact the that... Little, the, little, the little pearl. Blackberries were too expensive when I was in college for that. So we all had flip phones. That's why there's the nostalgia there for me, at least, because the people that had the Blackberry, they were the ones with the rich parents. That was not most of my friends. We were the <laughs> ones that went, my flip phone's sort of holding together. Maybe it'll last another year with this duct tape I've put on it. <laughs> I broke a flip phone once trying to use it as a flashlight in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had it open and I was trying to look down in this, this crevice and then I yep. dropped it. The thing snapped. <laughs> I have uh, also done the same with flip phones and I I snapped the antenna off when it fell and I had to tape the antenna back into place. That's funny. 
All right. Well, thanks for sharing that there, John. That's great. And uh, we look forward to your review in a future episode. Uh, moving sure. on to the next news point here. It's all about gaming. For those of you that didn't know, we've talked about it before, actually. But Google is one of the first to really get into the true cloud gaming concept. Yes, Google Stadia launches this week. And the concept behind this is that it will work with the Chromecast, it will work on your computer, or it will work with an Android phone and a few other random platforms. Chromecast does have to be Chromecast Ultra. They do sell a controller, but they're going to work with a few different types of controller. And this is that concept that we've talked about where all of the processing for the gaming happens up in the cloud. Well, if you haven't been following this, the uh, announcement was that there was going to be, I think, 11 games at launch. And that was the original the amount of games that they said was going to launch this week with Google Stadia. 11. Well, this week, they increased that to 22 games. Yes, they doubled their library as they went from 11 to 22. And the games that they have said are going to launch with Google Stadia is Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Attack on Titan Final Battle 2, Destiny 2 The Collection, Farming Simulator 2019, Final Fantasy, uh, which one is that? What is that? Uh, 15 is that, I guess? 15. Football Manager 2020, Grid 2019, Guilt, spelled G-Y-L-T, Just Dance 2020, Kine, Metro Exodus, Mortal Kombat 11, NBA 2020, Rage 2, Rise of the Tomb Raider, Red Dead Redemption 2, Good game. Samurai Showdown, Shadow Ooh. of Tomb Raider, Thumper, Tomb Raider 2013, Trials Rising, and Wolfenstein Youngblood, or Wolfenstein if you'd prefer. So we're up to 22 now. Now, here's the interesting thing about Google Stadia is as they, they currently have it, you will pay your subscription plus you will pay for games. That's the way that it is right now. I say right now because we know that Microsoft has xCloud coming out pretty soon and who knows what else we're going to see. And apparently Microsoft's going to work out a subscription thing where it includes some games and whatnot. So who knows? We've seen Google change course before. But this is, even though it's only 22 games, it is quite a significant increase, relatively speaking. Is it enough to make it a success? I have my doubts. But how many people care about those games they just added on? These are games that have been out for ages that people probably already mm -hmm. own on uh -huh. their hardware. It's not like you're importing your Steam key into Stadia and be like, okay, I'm going to play this game here. It's They didn't have a ton of games. They got more on there that probably no one cares about. And it's kind of a distraction of like, hey, remember all those things we promised at launch we'd have capability wise? Well, they're not there, but here's more games to distract you from it. Because I was reading some of the reviews on my lunch break today. It's getting pretty rough reviews. Everyone's saying, hey, the foundation is here, but it feels like I'm paying to be a beta tester. But stuff they promised, like the Google Assistant integration in it or being able to save your save points and put them out for other people to try them and stuff like that. None of that is there. It's effectively just cloud-based gaming that promises 4K and doesn't quite get to 4K. In fact, they were playing Destiny 2 in one of the reviews I read. And the guy said, well, it's sending me 4K imagery, but it's compressed out the wazoo. He goes, if it's 1080p, I'd be shocked. 
what the equivalent was after all the compression. So it's not there yet. It's interesting, but this edition of games is a, hey, look over here because we don't want you to notice what's wrong over here on this game system that we're launching officially today. Say what now? Say what? And now, and you mentioned Project X Cloud. I can talk about this in passing. I'm on the beta for Project X Cloud. I've played a couple different games on it, just trying it. And I have not played Stadia yet, but it's a very smooth and easy process there. And on a cell phone, I felt like I was getting good picture quality. I haven't tried it on a PC because I don't think you can. But I think Microsoft might be closer and Microsoft has the built-in customer base like you touched on. They have people who subscribe to Game Pass who already have Xboxes. And theoretically, if they made it so that if you have a Game Pass subscription and had Project X Cloud and you could just push a button and spin up any one of your digital games, you'd be good to go. And supposedly, that's what you're able to do now with this current iteration of the beta that went out is any game you own a digital copy of, you can spin up and play on your cell phone or your device. Now, Microsoft's goal isn't really putting this on Chromecasts and PCs to replace an Xbox yet. There's no reason they couldn't say, hey, download the new, uh, what the heck are they calling the new browser now? Is it still Edge, even though it's Chrome, basically? Yeah, they changed the logo. Yeah, they changed the logo. So download the new Edge, and now you can play your Xbox games on your desktop if you want. You can see that coming. They've already sort of played with some stuff like that, where it was, if you bought Gears 5, you got a PC version of it for free also that you could download and save and play with uh, cross, excuse me, cross-platform save games. Microsoft might be closer. I think the technology is fascinating with Google is doing, but it's not ready. And I think you have a lot of people that have that typical fear now of, oh, no, it's another Google project that seems kind of half-baked. The technology is promising. How long until they just go, oh, this sucks. We're out and just kill it. Yeah, uh, I mentioned this before. I did put in for the pre-order. Um, not that I had full intentions of keeping it. I was going to cancel it. Then I read the line that said that I can return it. And and so I didn't cancel it, but I've been back and forth because my dad also put in a pre-order and um, I didn't cancel it just because we were talking. And like I said, I could possibly return it. But from what I've been seeing, I think I'm probably not even going to open it up. I think it's probably going to go back because Microsoft does seem to be like they're in a better state. Uh, I ha- I was really hoping that Google would end up having a much larger profile than what they've announced. The only thing that might make me keep it is my Chromecast that I have in my living room is dead. And I only have first gens around. And if anybody still uses a first gen, you know that they struggle sometimes with higher quality YouTube videos to load. So I need to get a new Chromecast as it is. And I'll probably pay for the 4K just for the better hardware. If there's anything the Fire Stick 4K taught me, it's that you go for the better hardware, even if you don't have 4K, because it's much more responsive. So I'd have to do a little bit of a cost analysis and see sort of where we're at and if it's really worth it uh, to send it back. But I think it would be. I think that I'd probably still be better just to buy a 4K Chromecast. And full credit before I get accused of being a Microsoft homer, albeit I am a bit of Microsoft homer, I'll admit. Uh, Sony has their own implementation of Cloud Play PlayStation Now, which I still think might be a bit ahead of where we seem to be with Stadia. The concept that's cool with Stadia is being able to pick up any device and be able to play and transfer games between your PC and your Chromecast seamlessly. That stuff is cool, but if it, if you can't beat the competitors to get market saturation, I don't know that it matters how cool it is. I think we're witnessing Google trying some tech to see how it crosses over into some other purpose at a future date. 
Well, and that was one of the reasons I was so interested in Stadia was because of the fact that I like to play games, but I don't always have the opportunity to play the games and the consoles in the living room. A lot of times my kids are either in there or my wife is watching TV or something. And so the idea of being able to use Stadia in a variety of different places was very appealing on a lunch break, whatever. But it just it, it seems more and more like I think it's actually going to deliver tomorrow. It hasn't actually said that they're going to deliver tomorrow in Canada. It's several weeks out, but I have a sneaking suspicion it's going to show up tomorrow. I think it's going to go back. One thing to keep in mind, I don't think Stadia works on LTE yet. From one of the reviews I've read seemed to indicate they had to trick their phone into doing it over LTE so that they could run Stadia. Perhaps I misread it or I'm recalling it incorrectly. Someone who is better versed in this may want to double check that, but it looks like right now it is based off of Wi-Fi where you can do this because you have to have what, like a 20 megabit per second connection minimum is what they're recommending. Oh, come on. That's ridiculous. LTE is faster than most Wi-Fi connections but around. It is if it's not saturated. The problem is if you get mm-hmm. enough people that are pulling data at the same time, there might be a big pipe, but your piece of it is small. Fair enough. Well, anyways, I guess the same argument could be made with Wi-Fi. Like you could be on a a crowded Wi-Fi network, yet it's going to allow you to do that, but not allow you on LTE. It's weird. It should it should have it should allow you to do LTE, but give you a warning like it should do with Wi-Fi. Part of it might be saving you from yourself because this is bandwidth intensive, and if you're on a metered you know, Wi-Fi, not Wi-Fi, a cellular connection. You could burn up a lot of data playing an hour of a game or something like that, especially if you're trying Easily. to push 4K visuals down to your phone. That, that's the bigger thing that no one's been talking about in any of these cloud-based things is most of us are on metered internet, whether our providers admit it or not. And if you want to push down a 4K stream, that is bandwidth intensive and that meter is going to fill up real fast. Okay, but there's other streaming services that are doing high quality content that we might get to in a couple of minutes here. Yes, but the compression is not the same. Those Uh things can compress more than you are compressing on this video stream. There are estimates that came out that if you're doing a a 4K stream, it's effectively somewhere between 20 to 40 gigs per hour you might be burning through. (laughs) Sweet! That's awesome. Yeah. That Uh, sounds about right. I guess. Okay, so then I guess that makes sense. Maybe why they're holding off on the LTE for now. Same reason why you have to enable it in the options for Project X Cloud. It's not turned on by default because they don't want you blowing up your uh, data connection. Suncast, do you have any comments on this? It's very interesting. And I think the first year or first few months even will be very crucial to see how they can correct bugs and criticism that they're going to receive. Because it sounds like once it does launch, it's, it's going to be overwhelming overwhelmingly negative and so it'll be how quickly can they address those issues i agree especially with the profile or the portfolio i should say that they're launching with i think that there's not a lot of leeway that people are going to give them yeah i think at, at this point it's very much a novelty yes yes agreed 100 percent Well, speaking of novelties, I think you could say that owning this upcoming vehicle might be a little bit of a novelty or maybe the name use is a bit of a novelty. Chris, what's going on? So you guys know I'm fascinated by Teslas and to a lesser extent other electric vehicles. I think the technology is fascinating. I've talked about Teslas a few different times on this show. One thing I haven't talked about is the Ford move into the electrical vehicle EV market rather. 
And this Sunday, they officially unveiled what they're calling the Mustang, must, excuse me, Mustang Mach-E SUV. This is after months of teaser images, years of hype, them putting $11 billion supposedly in EVs, and then kind of a last minute leak that came out and showed off everything about this new vehicle. So this Mustang Mach-E SUV that is supposedly inspired by the Mustang, we got to find out about it. It is a five-seater SUV that can travel about 210 miles on a full battery or also goes 300 miles on a full battery, depending on which vehicle you get. One of the Mustang Mach-E options will beat most other sport cars from zero to 60 miles per hour, while some others will barely edge out a Chevy Bolt. So there's a wide variety of performance features and battery features you can get with this. Some of these Mustangs ship in late 2020, others ship in spring 2021. And if you're interested in them, you can put your $500 deposit down now to get yourself a Mustang Mach-E SUV. So let's kind of go through some of the trims a little bit and talk about what they're doing. This is effectively Ford's electronic SUV that is equivalent to the Tesla Model Y that will be coming from Tesla soon. So the most affordable one of these Mustangs starts at $43,895, which is supposedly a few thousand dollars more than the current average selling price of a vehicle in the United States. Side note, I just bought a car two weeks ago and my car was well below what that price is. So I guess I'm lowering the end of that spectrum. I'm not sure. Obviously, uh, it's your fault. It's your fault. Yeah, evidently. So we're, it's about $44,000, but one thing to keep in mind is here in the United States, all of Ford's electric and hybrid vehicles are still eligible for that $7,500 $7, federal tax credit. So you can knock $7,500 off of that after taxes. And then there are some state incentives that still exist that could give you upwards or give you about another $2,500 in discount in some states. I do believe Pennsylvania was one of those states where they incentivize hybrid purchases. So if you went with the $43,895 version, you could potentially save $10,000 come tax time, making a much more palatable $33,000 vehicle. Still expensive, but maybe not as much so for a new cutting edge EV. So the base trim, that's that $44,000 vehicle. That is what they're calling the select model. It'll be available in real wheel drive and all wheel drive configurations. It will ship in spring 2021. Both versions use a 75.7 kilowatt hour standard range battery pack that Ford designed for the EV. The rear wheel drive version of the vehicle has a range of about 230 miles and about 255 horsepower, goes from zero to 60 in about six or seven seconds. The all wheel drive version is about a second quicker, but there's a range cost. You only get an estimated range of 210 miles on a full battery. Both of these vehicles, the select trim, can charge at rates up to 115 kilowatts at DC fast charging stations. The rest of the variants in the Mustang Mach-E line will be capable of charging at up to 150 kilowatts. Now, this is just the base trim we talked about here, guys. There's, there's more trims. There's the premium trim. It starts at $51,000. Is that like what happens when you're going to get married and you need your beard trimmed? Is that the premium trim? Is that what we're talking about here? Yes. That's how you make sure you don't accidentally trim a spot out of your beard like I did. And uh, there's a chunk of my sideburn that's still growing back in. <laughs> okay. So the, you got to get a premium trim. You got a budget trim. <laughs> I did. That was my problem. So the premium trim starts at roughly $51,000. Ships late 2020. You can buy the premium Mach-E with the standard range battery pack or pay more for a 98.8 kilowatt hour extended range pack. Each version can be optioned with rear wheel drive or all wheel drive. 
Meaning there's four possible range estimates here. So let's do the, let's break it down. 210 miles for standard range with all-wheel drive, 230 miles for standard range with real-wheel drive, 270 miles for extended range with all-wheel drive, and 300 miles for extended range with rear-wheel drive. Uh, both the all-wheel drive versions of the premium will go zero to 60 in the mid-five-second range, and the rear-wheel drive versions sit in the mid-sixes. So for an SUV, pretty fast. And we've seen with Teslas, lots of torque off the line. So as soon as you hit that pedal, you've got instant torque. So that gets us to the premium trim. You would think we'd be done here, but no, no, no. Ford wants to confuse us in even more. There's still three trims left what? for the Mustang Mach-E. And I'll try and touch on them really quickly because these are the super expensive ones that probably none of us traditional consumers will be getting. The first one up is the California Route 1 Mustang E set to ship in early 2021, <laughs> starting at $52,400 it only comes in the real-wheel drive configuration with the extended battery pack. Ford says it'll get 300 miles of range and deliver 282 horsepower. So next up, the $59,900 first edition is a limited production initial run version set to arrive in late 2020 alongside the premium model. First edition marries all-wheel drive with the extended range pack for 270 miles of range, 333 horsepower. It will also come with with special first edition labels, brushed aluminum pedals, red brake calipers, and be available in bright blue paint job that Ford won't offer on other Mustangs. So you can you can pay extra to be an early adopter and have those early adopter problems and have everyone know it. And then finally, if you want to get the best of the best, there is the Mustang Mach-E GT, kind of tying into the fact that the Mustang GT is the big daddy of all the Mustangs. This all-wheel drive-only version of the vehicle starts at $60,000, comes with a special GT badging, and a metallic-looking front grille. The front grille in pictures looks hella sweet. Get a chance to look at it. It only gets about 250 miles out of the extended-range battery pack, but that's because they've tuned this beast for performance. It's the fastest with the quickest acceleration. It's the one you could have the most fun with. But with an EV, it's got the least range, so you kind of have to temper your expectations. So... We talked about the cost, the different ranges, things like that. But here's the problem. How, how do I charge this thing, guys? I, I don't know what I'm going to do here. Well, you can charge it with 110 plugs in your house, similar to what you do with Teslas. That gets you like two or three miles per hour of charge. You can also plug it into a 220-volt wall adapter, where they say it'll get you anywhere between 28 to 32 miles per hour, which is equivalent to what you see with Teslas. They're also cutting deals with the large charging networks such as Electrify America to find available chargers and set up a single billing process similar to what Tesla does with superchargers, meaning you just pull up, plug it in, and you'd be billed automatically. Not as fast as superchargers, not as extensive as superchargers, but it's a first step. What it comes down to here is Ford's made this big move. It looks really cool. It's an interesting concept, but Tesla's invested millions, billions into the supercharger network. That's the competitive advantage they have, which is I can get the short-range Tesla that goes only 230 miles. I can make it to pretty much any supercharger, recharge, and keep going. If I've got this Ford one, there's select stations by like Electrify America or other EV things that I might be able to find out there and be able to charge off of, but it's not as easy to find them. It's a first step, and it's fascinating, and it's the way of the future potentially. And if you look at this Mustang Mach-E, look at the exterior and look at the interior, it's very, very much inspired by Tesla. Like the interior of this vehicle, 
has like a giant uh, tablet in the center display, just like you have with the Model 3. It actually has some dials and buttons below it, but it's very, very much looking like a Tesla. And imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, many people say. Elon Musk even commented on it to the fact of, hey, this is great competition. We're seeing the future here with other car manufacturers going electric. And this is actually relatively affordable and kind of in line with the cost of most of these Teslas. It's just a matter of, can you live with the potentially limited network as they build things out? I would assume they're going to start putting chargers and stuff in it, like Ford dealerships and stuff like that. I didn't see anything official on that, but they own those properties already. Why not? So the electric vehicle market is kind of heating up. There's legit competition to Tesla now. This Mustang Mach-E entry price, $43,000, $44,000 with incentives drops down to 33, depending. That's in line with an internal combustion engine vehicle. I think it's fascinating and it's a glance of where we might be going in the future. I'm really interested in this and I'll I'll go out right away and say that I think that using the name Mustang was very generous on this. I don't think yes, yes. <laughs> there was anything anything in this that really looks inspired by a Mustang. The front end a little bit maybe, but maybe other than that, maybe a little bit, but when when you go and you look at like Mustangs through the years, you see the relation. I don't yes. know that you're going to see the relation with this. However, I Ford get why focus. they is. <laughs> I get why they did it. I get why they did it because they wanted their first big launch. After a couple of years ago, they announced that they were eliminating basically every single car in their North American line in order to start developing EVs. They wanted their big big push to be something that could rival a Tesla in some degrees and that so that was built to sort of fit that pocket of what a Mustang driver might kind of want and things like that. Uh, looks wise, again, nothing like a Mustang. So I get why they did it. And they also wanted, I'm sure, to come out and say, our first EV was a Mustang. But I'm really looking forward to where this leads because I have had lots of people shake their head at me, disagree with me. I- I'm of the opinion that Ford is is actually the step that's really going to excel the EV market because Tesla has been such a niche market. I think Tesla was a a good opportunity to show what could be done and some potential, but I think it's still very unattainable for certain people, especially Mm -hmm. when you look at geographical areas where you can actually find Tesla deals or Tesla support and things like that. When you have a big major North American manufacturer like Ford getting into the game, I think that things change quite a bit, especially if they do continue on their sort of Ford price point and incentives and all these other things. And so now that they've got something out, I'm really excited to see what other things come out soon. Because I, I heard they have, I think, a an actual full-size SUV in the process. That's interesting mm-hmm. to see what's going to happen. I think they also said they're working on uh, an F-150, I think. Tesla's also got a truck that they're going to announce sometime this month also, so it's going to be interesting there. Uh, What's really interesting on this, though, is this is like not just a token we're going to throw an EV out there to try and get people interested, like you see with the Chevy Bolt and some of those other things, where, yeah, it's an electric vehicle, but it doesn't really meet people's needs. This is in line with what Tesla's done. It's an electric vehicle you could use to replace your daily driver, where there's less compromises and you don't have to feel like, oh, I'm driving this rinky-dink vehicle around the looks kind of weird, but all for the sacrifice of electric. You could drive this around and you could feel like you're having that sporty vehicle experience if you want, or have a little bit of fun with it, similar to the Teslas. And 
The one thing I forgot to mention on this that I thought was entertaining is where they held this event was in Los Angeles in the exact same aircraft hangar that Tesla has done their last announcements. And in fact, in the background of it, you could actually see some of the SpaceX buildings behind this hangar from where they were broadcasting <laughs> from. So it was interesting that they went to the exact same place as Tesla to unveil their Tesla vehicles, basically in their backyard. I'm not saying that's a shots fired kind of thing. I'm just saying they know where the crowd goes that's interested in this because let's be honest, electric vehicles far more interesting to folks in states that are more inclined to provide tax breaks and also states that don't have, I don't know, mountains and extreme temperature shifts because you're still going to have the same problem like I have in West Virginia. I was looking at Tesla's that in the winter, my range is nerfed. And if I get 60% of my range when the battery is really cold, that's a good day. And I don't want to live my life with range anxiety in the winter because that would be miserable. Agreed. And I think that that's where you're going to see a lot of these pick up is the states and the provinces and the areas where they're not fighting with those things. And especially people that do spend a lot of time just idling, right? You know, mm -hmm. they, they don't actually travel that far, but they spend a couple of hours in their car every day. They're not going far. So I think it'll be yeah. interesting to see uh, where this leads. And also just, again, the idea of something like Ford, uh, the supply network they've got, seeing what this does. But again, I, I don't agree that I, I'm with Suncast. It's not a Mustang. I know you didn't say that on here, Suncast, but the offline you've mentioned it a few times. Uh, I really wish they would not have called this a Mustang because that's just an instant turnoff for me because I'm looking at this thing and it, taillights, maybe a little bit Mustang-ish. That's pretty much it. I mean, you know what this looks like? You know, it's like, okay, like when somebody's developing an animated kids show or something like this and, and they may draw a car and they make it a little cartoony and more kid friendly. That's kind of what this looks like to me. Fair. Fair. I think the Mustang name, like Steven mentioned, was just for brand recognition. I think if they'd called it something else, people wouldn't be like, oh, I'm interested to see what this electric vehicle is. Well, and also it's, it's, I think it's that misusing the name is what it is. It, it's it's exchanging the Mustang name, the Mustang brand, for free hype. I think they might be trying to make the argument that this is the future of the Mustang because we're. I think the argument is trying to be made that eventually we're going to move away from ICE engines and go to predominantly electric, and perhaps they see this as the spiritual successor to it. I think it's a weak argument because the Mustang's muscle car, it's iconic, everyone knows what it is, right. and this is Mustang loosely inspired at best, but it does what it needs to, which is it ties into that brand recognition for people. People go, oh, that's a Ford vehicle when they hear that. Just like when you hear Charger, you think Dodge and things like that. Fair enough. Yeah, I just don't see this as a Ford Mustang whatsoever. It's just... That's fair. There, there, there's little, tiny, subtle things in the body style that kind of looks like a Mustang, but overall, in general, no. It, I it just It's such a turnoff to me for them to call it a Mustang. I would go as far as to say if you were to take any photo that you can find of this thing and you photoshopped out the Mustang logo, you would never, ever guess that it was a Mustang. Yeah. I, I think that the logo is the only thing that ever makes your mind as you look at it go, oh, maybe, maybe yeah, you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to the extra extra here. I uh, just wanted to quickly touch on the fact that we need to say RIP to a beloved assistant that we all hated. That's right. It looks like Cortana is going away.
For those of you that weren't familiar with this, Microsoft's voice assistant named Cortana is the thing that was built into Windows and you could get an app on your phone and all sorts of other things. Well, it looks like Microsoft might be refocusing Cortana as the mobile app for iOS and Android is being pulled from several countries, including Canada. I think it's still going to hang around the US a little while longer, but many other countries it's being pulled back. all three of the people using it. Exactly. (laughs) So you're no longer going to have support starting on January 31st for Cortana. And it looks like instead they're working to make a personal digital assistant based on Cortana going into the Microsoft 365 suite of products. Essentially, they're trying to take the name that they they have in play already called Cortana and shove it into the AI that they want to put into Microsoft so that they can use all of your data and mine all of that. I mean, what? Uh, Yes, that's where you're going to find Cortana-ish is headed into the Microsoft 365 products. Just wanted to mention that here because we've talked a little bit about Cortana here and there. And further, I think we called this when the writing went on the wall that Microsoft allowed a word onto Windows boxes. It was a long time ago they did, but I think there was a couple of people, Chris and SP, I think might have called this being the end of Cortana. Uh, I won't say I did because if I ever say anything, I'm wrong. So instead, we will say that it was Chris and SP that called this. Here's what they need to do. They need to rename Cortana to Clippy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now Clippy Clippy has some company now in the graveyard. They should stay away from C names. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'll say Cortana was the only thing that Cortana had going, the name itself. That was the only thing that Cortana had going. I had troubles with it every single way that I used it. And when Cortana finally, finally got to me, like I really, truly hated it, was when I was reinstalling a Windows laptop and it tried to force me to voice assist, talk to it. And I had to do a couple of things in order to just use the basic setup. Instead, it wanted to use Cortana to set up Windows. I'm like, no, this is stupid. I would rather type it in. It's faster. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk to you, Cortana. So anyways, go away, Cortana. We're, I mean, we're, we're going to mi- miss you, maybe? Something nice about Cortana? No, Cortana, you, you deserve to die. There we go. I said it. Wow. Yeah. Let's go ahead and move on to our future segment where we're going to talk about Disney+. Plus. For those of you that haven't tried it yet, yes, Disney has a new streaming service called Disney Plus. We mentioned it last week. It launched last Tuesday and it launched to a lot of people. Yes, Disney Plus did way better than they anticipated and it has had a full week now. We've basically had about a week now of using it and we thought we would take a moment here to talk about our initial experiences with Disney Plus what we liked, some things we might want to see changed, some other experiences maybe that we had, and just generally talk about our first week with Disney+. And I'll kick it all off here right away and say that last Monday, so this was supposed to launch on the Tuesday, we figured it out on the podcast, supposed to be about 3 a.m. my time. Well, on Monday, I was up around 11 p.m. at night my time, and I I thought to myself, well, let me let me give this a look and see if I can see the app yet. Because earlier in the day, Chris had been saying that the apps were supposed to go online a little bit later. And I looked and sure enough, I was able to download them. But 
I was also able to get registered. Yes. The Disney Plus service did launch ahead of time. It was about four or five hours early that it came online versus what they had announced. So obviously they felt up to the challenge and it probably was a very, very smart decision because the first day they had a lot of problems. They had a ton of glitches because of the fact that there were so many people signing up. They did, I think they said way over what their entire 20, I think their entire first year's goal was within the first day. Did you see the number they said at the end of day one, how many subscribers they had? 10 million after the end of day one. And I think that was way over what they even wanted for their entire first year. So they got a lot of people signing up. And as such, there was a bit of glitches on day one. But when I had signed up the night before, I looked through the catalog and uh, I was a little disappointed, actually, because as I went through the different menus and I saw very similar to Netflix, where you got your different categories of movies and shows, there was all sorts of things that I thought were missing because of the fact that they weren't in there. Uh, and I had said before on this show that I was worried about what the Canadian licensing was going to be. And sure enough, I didn't see titles. Well, I ended up going over to the search side of things and found these titles that weren't there on the main menu. So it looks like the main menu is going to sort of adapt maybe based off of how you use it or whatever. There is a couple other avenues where you can find a bigger list. But initially, my first experience when I signed up was disappointing because I thought that there was missing a bunch of titles. Are, now, are, again, are they were some of those titles, just titles that weren't available yet, because I know there are titles on there that they, they actually have it listed. You can search for it, but they say that it's not available until like January 2020. No, these were titles right. that were in the catalog, but they didn't show up on that main menu. So okay. and they're still not it's, there. And I think it's, again, just the way the menu is populating. But when I went and searched, I was able to find them. For example, Darkwing Duck couldn't find it anywhere anywhere on on the menu but a search revealed it save with chippendale rescue rangers also not to be found but after i searched and i found these in here then i started to get a little more exciting as i realized the massive back catalog that was in there and i'll say that setup was actually fairly easy as well just like netflix really easy to set up multiple profiles indicate whether or not there's a kid's profile pick a character a lot of familiarity to what we've come to love about netflix so my first initial experience with it was a little bit disappointing, but then as I started to search, I was quite impressed actually with what I saw. Yes, there is a little bit of differences between the US catalog and the Canadian, but in at least one situation, I have a title in Canada that you don't have in the US. <coughs> John Carter. <coughs> oh, yeah, darn. I'm missing it so much. <laughs> God, how, how will I cope by not seeing John Carter? <laughs> Chris, what was your first initial impression as you started to go into this? So I generally get up early to go to work around here, and I generally go out the door somewhere around 6 to 6.15. So on launch day, I woke up. I was getting ready to go to work. and I had a little bit of time. So about 6 a.m., I turned on the TV, specifically the Apple TV, and I installed the app on there. Then I installed it on my Roku and then on my Android phone pretty much all at the same time. The apps downloaded pretty quickly, no issues. I did everything on the Apple TV to begin with, which was went on there, set up a profile for myself, my wife, my father. The icons were loading and easy to select for each uh, profile, which is a glitch that I ran into later that evening when they were getting hammered. For some reason, I couldn't go and then select icons for profiles. Weird, odd little glitch that then resolved itself. And just because I wanted to test how the service worked, I knew I wasn't going to have time to watch anything. They had touted the fact Avengers Endgame 
is on Disney Plus. So I turned on the first five minutes on my Apple TV just to see for myself it was in fact 4K HDR Dolby Atmos. That was all confirmed between my TV and my receiver. Played nice, played smooth. I didn't have any problems for my initial trial at 6 a.m. when the service had just started. I know a lot of people throughout the day had issues with weird load screens or stuttering, things like that. But let's also bear in mind the servers were getting hammered. When I went on my second try, for lack of a better term, and actually watched content for real that evening about 7, 38 o'clock at night, I didn't have any problems searching for content, adding it to my watch list, playing that content. No issues there. So for the Apple TV, it was working fine. It loaded probably quicker than on any other device I have, but the Apple TV also has the most horsepower. My Roku Premiere Plus, it loaded up just fine. The app looks the same as what you see on iOS, which kind of surprised me because Roku apps are generally, how do I put it best? Not as pretty looking as what you see on Android TV, iOS, Fire TV Stick, things like that. Came up no problem. Pulled it up on my Android phone. Had no problem. Things loaded quickly. Gave me the little option to cast. Same with the iOS device. And I honestly forgot to install it on the Fire TV Stick I have in my house. So I have no idea. Uh if it works well on my Fire TV stick or not. I assume it does, but I haven't I got dependent yet. version and it works on there. Okay. I've got one of just like the $20 sticks. Uh, I have the Fire Stick 4K um, and it's it's what I've been mostly using for it. It's been working pretty well. Suncast, what was your initial impressions as you fired up Disney Plus? So like Chris, I didn't do a whole lot early on. Um, it was probably midday before I even logged on and checked out some of the stuff. But I was fairly impressed with the amount of stuff that you are actually able to uh, see that's available on Disney+. Plus. There was a lot of stuff. Yeah, everybody knows they announced all the Star Wars stuff was going to be on there for the most part. And uh, this and that. And when it's like when you're actually on there looking through stuff, it's like, OK, you got like everything that has ever aired on Disney Plus on there. It's like overwhelming. Any show, any movie. Yeah. Yeah. And and then you combine that with like all the 90s stuff, all the Marvel stuff, you know, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Darkwing Duck, Tailspin, all that sort of stuff. It's just like it 90s X-Men. Cool. <laughs> yeah. 90s X-Men. Like, <laughs> and, and then even as I'm searching through some stuff and it's like, wow, there's even some like really old obscure stuff that I've never even heard of. Like, you know, the early featurettes where you had Chip and Dale, mm -hmm. like those mm -hmm. sort of cartoons that were from like the the early days, the 50s, 60s or 70s or whenever this content was actually produced. And it's like that stuff is on there. And it's just like that's kind of neat that you're actually able to go back that far to some of those shows. No, I totally agree. And I have to say that one of the things that I really, really like about this is that they have populated their catalog of what is to come. So if you do a yes. search for a title, for example, in Canada right now, Netflix still has the licensing to the original Avengers. So if you pull up Avengers, it tells you that there is a date that it will show up. So they actually give you the specific date that it's going to show up to the catalog, which is nice. It's And it says it's right there uh, due to licensing restrictions. So they're transparent. And, uh, and, you know, just to jump a little bit into some of the wishes that I wish I it would have. I do wish it would be a little bit more clear when you searched for a title and it showed up in the results, maybe it would be gray or it would have a little, you know, 2022 or coming soon banner or something. But I love the fact that it's in the catalog. So there's no question of why isn't it in there or you just write it off as it's never coming. 
such right. a big catalog. And and no, I agree. There's a, a, Chris mentioned classic uh, X-Men and I have set my kids up with this and they've explored some of this and we've showed them some of those uh, TV shows as well. And I've come into the room a couple of times here and they've been watching some 90s cartoons and things like that. And I'm like, that looks familiar. And and it's great because it's a whole new generation loving older content. I think that's the cool part. It's like, yeah, okay. Anybody for the past forever, it was like, okay, you can go in, you know, once in a while find these Disney movies and build up your Disney movie collection and stuff. But it's like, you can get all the shows that are like actually hard to find and it's like it's all on there the first night once all the glitches went away because i can confirm glitches i saw them after work i saw them on my lunch i saw them randomly when i pulled it up on my phone it it was really rough and i suspect that's probably to do with the area where i live there's a large population probably tying on to that same server within the cdn i suspect so however um once those settled down, we sat there that evening. I guess it was Tuesday evening and my mother-in-law was there and we were just shouting out random titles, trying to search them up, finding them, looking them at them, seeing them there and just seeing what was showing up. And there was so much old back catalog. And that's one of the things that I'm really looking forward to here as I go through this is looking back on some of these older titles and things that I'd heard of, but not necessarily seen. You know, in the 90s, there was some remakes that were done of some old properties. And as I was searched, I can't think of them off the top of my head. But as I searched, I would see the 90s title as well as the old like 60s title. And I'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to seeing that. Definitely uh, excited to kind of look through that. Now, from an, an initial experience perspective, I want to put a little bit of a complaint in here that I have found my PC experience not to be great. The Chrome... Uh, version of Disney Plus, I couldn't really use it. It was stuttery. It kept buffering. It was really odd. It it wasn't smooth. Mm. I found it tolerable in Firefox, but it was not as clear. Like there was a little bit of pixelation. I know Sun Suncast mentioned you had trouble as well, didn't you? I I couldn't use it in Firefox at all, but it did work all right in Chrome. Okay. A lot of my complaints stem with the UI. Hmm, okay. That's pretty much the same UI across all things, but for the stuff you were streaming that was stuttery, was that stuff that would be in 1080p or 4K, or was it just like old school stuff that was of the lower quality? The first one was Mandalorian. Okay, so that one, it probably tried to give you the 4K stream, and there's probably something jacked up with their configuration where they don't realize, hey, these browsers can't handle that. that I don't be. even think Netflix comes in 1080p to Chrome right now. I think it's still 720. That could very well be. I don't remember where I ended up watching it, if I just settled with the Firefox or if I did have success in IE or something. I don't know. I did end up watching. You know, you say, ooh, but the thing is, Netflix actually works better in Edge. Yes, because it's it's the only thing you can go 1080p in browser wise. Yeah, which is dumb. I know. Mm. Um, But aside from that, it's been good. Like it was was completely solid on my Fire Stick. And uh, yeah, I just hope to work out those quirks on the PC. The other thing that I want to mention as well that I thought was really nice about this, I touched on it, but the fact that you can set kids profiles, which will then reduce down the content. That is a nice thing to have being able to, to reduce some of the content to just kids titles. But from a critiques and sort of what I want to see perspective with this, 
uh, right away talking about that. The parental controls, I think they still need some enhancement. While you can go in and you can set profiles as kids' profiles, the problem is that kids can easily swap to an adult profile without a password or anything like that. With Netflix, you can put a pin on that content. So if they happen to go into your profile and they try to start up orange, they get a pin that you have to put in. There's nothing like that. And the reason I find this a little challenging is because Disney has such a broad scope of the titles that are in there. They have stuff all the way up to PG-13. They also have stuff that is meant for the three-year-old, you know? So you have a very different market base between a 13-year-old and a three-year-old. And there might be the possibility that you want to lock out some of that more adult content. For example, the title that I, I've been citing as I've been talking about this, I wouldn't necessarily want my kids right now to watch Rogue One. Maybe my oldest, I might let get away with it, but probably not. I still don't really want my kids to watch Rogue One because it's basically a war movie that is glorified in a lot of ways because it's leading in, trying to lead into Star Wars nostalgia. So I personally... Uh, think that they need to enhance that. And the other thing that I'd like to see them as well do is make that navigation a little bit smoother. I think it needs a mm -hmm. lot of work with that UI. There's no yes. continue watching bar. So if you start a title, you have to go research oh it, relocate it. Like, absolutely. That's that's one of my biggest complaints right there. It's just the whole continue watching. Like That to me is a fundamental feature for any streaming service these days. It's even more difficult because I ran into this on the PC version where I've been watching a cartoon called Recess that I remember watching as a kid. And I was halfway through episode two, but I didn't remember I was halfway through episode two. So I just hit the play button on the show page and it didn't go to the episode I left off on. It started playing episode one in there. So just hitting the play button from the show page doesn't go to your most recently watched. It goes back to the very first episode. So I had to go and look for an obscure white bar across the bottom for the progress indicator to try and figure out what episode I was on. So from a from a binging in a marathon standpoint, it's kind of difficult unless you remember explicitly where you left off to try and figure out where you're going. And mm -hmm. like you mentioned, Steve, it'd be great if they adopted something similar to what Netflix has with the continue watching bar of stuff at the top of the screens. You can remember, oh, yeah, I was on episode three of this cartoon, episode four mm -hmm. of this one. I can just click on it. And it takes me to where I left off. So I'm not having to hunt and peck for it. And the hunting and pecking is a really good point because that's another thing that I think the UI really needs improvement on. I don't think it's easy to find these big catalogs that I mentioned. I think if you go into the search section, then you can start to see a little bit more titles like movies and TV. But it's it's you almost have to know what you're searching for. Uh huh. It, it leaves a lot to be desired. And I hope discoverability is what you're really looking for. It's is, is a way to discover some of that other content that's maybe lesser known. Right. For, for example, the recess thing. I came across that. I don't remember how I came across that, but I saw that there, but it was nowhere really listed until I just happened to do a search. Another really good example of that is, and I'm guessing this will improve as they get more searches. If you go in right now and you type in the word Christmas, there's a whopping 18 titles in there. Does the Santa Claus come up as any of them? No, it doesn't, even though it's what? in the catalog. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really weird how um, the searchability, it, they've had so long, but it feels like the menu is in its infancy so much. It's really odd to me. It's a first step. I mean, I'm sure they're going to refine it and I can live with it for now, but it's just annoying is more of what it is. There, there's other issues they have, though, with their UI. Like 
You know how Netflix, you can watch half of an episode, you can forget about it, come back six months later and hit a restart from beginning button? Doesn't exist on Disney Plus shows that I've been able to find. So say you watch The Mandalorian and then you turned it off when the credits started to roll. It doesn't theoretically start you at the beginning. It could start you where those credits are and you have to fast forward to the end of the episode, then restart it to get back to the beginning. There's no method to be like, oh, I've, I've watched half of this. Now my wife came in and wants to see it. Let's start over from the very beginning, which is not necessarily a deal breaker, but it's annoying when it comes to some of these things when you're rewatching things. There's also a problem of the watch list is kind of hosed a little bit. So you can add all sorts of things to your watch list. Mm -hmm. And when you're on the screen and add it, it shows up just fine. It's marked as added to your watch list. But leave that screen and come back in at a later date. And like The Mandalorian, in my case, doesn't show up as on my watch list from that screen. So I click the button to add it again, and it re-adds it to my watch list, but also moves its position in order in the watch list because it's the most recently added thing then. So it's almost not sticking its watch list status when you go and open show pages, which, again, not a deal breaker, but it's annoying because it really annoyed me the first day. I'm like, I swear to God, I put Mandalorian on my watch list because I didn't want to forget about it. Mm -hmm. So... That was also annoying. And then what I would love to be able to find, and maybe I just can't find it, where's my watch history? Like yeah. Netflix, I can go and see what have I watched in the last six months. I can't find my watch history for what I've seen in Disney+. Plus. I can sort of figure it out on the Apple TV because Disney Plus bakes into the Apple TV app. So it'll then start bubbling up all the new episodes of stuff I care about to the Apple TV app on the Apple TV box. But there's no great way to find everything I've watched. No, I agree. I think that whole continue watching or keep watching aspect, like everything about continuing to watch a program or an episode is really rough right now. And it doesn't always function right either. Like I was watching the Jeff Goldblum show and uh, I was partway through, I think, the first episode. And then when I went to play it again, it started me at the beginning, even though I was halfway in. So there... It needs a lot of improvement in that whole area. Yeah. I, I agree, yeah. Chris. Mm -hmm. So two things here. One, I, I did that search for Christmas. And you're right. It's not there. But apparently, and this is pretty cool, Iron Man 3 is a Christmas movie, I, according to Disney+. It is. Plus. Uh -huh. That's because it is. <laughs> How is it a Christmas movie? I was wondering that because that was one of the titles that showed up when Dude, I did that it, search last night. It's a Shane Black movie <laughs> set during Christmas time. It's just it's Shane Black's shtick. He does all of his movies during Christmas time. Fair enough, I guess. Uh, yeah, but yeah, again, the Santa Claus, uh, which all three are available on Disney Plus, do not show up. So, so I mean, well, the other thing is, you know what? A lot of what we're talking about are and and the overall big picture are very minor things. These are things that Disney can easily fix given time. And it is not just a long time, but they could reasonably fix this within six months. But don't worry, as I search here. I'll be home for Christmas starting JTT is indeed uh, showing up <laughs> yes! there. So JTT <laughs> so for life. Go. There you go. That is in there. But no, you're right. I think Suncast, they can learn from the searches and the things like that. But it seems like a really basic thing. If you search Christmas, you should have Christmas titles. Like if I all of a sudden right now search Santa, apparently there is a show called or a movie called Santa Buddies, which is about dog, Santa Paws 2, Santa Paws. A whole bunch of other random movies that are coming up here, but they're not showing up when you type Christmas. So it's kind of odd, especially given they're launching before Christmas. I wonder yes. if as we get closer to Christmas, we'll get a curated list there of like Christmas mm. movies because you can click on like the Darth Vader list of stuff and it brings up like T2 
TV shows and movies and stuff Darth Vader's been in. So maybe once we get past Thanksgiving into actual Christmas time, when people should start watching Christmas movies and things like that, then they'll have a curated list there that brings up like Disney's best of Christmas or something like that. It wouldn't surprise me. That'd be really cool. I'm glad you mentioned that because you mentioned the collections there. If you have a look, like there's the the Luke Skywalker collection. Uh, there's other random, I think the Disney Princess collection. And they're essentially a compilation of a bunch of different titles and whatnot. Uh, that was one thing that I did notice. And I don't know if it's fixed now. But for example, I think I went to go to the, the Luke Skywalker collection. And it came up with an error message saying not available in your area. Or same thing with the Disney Princess one or whatever. There was a couple there. And one of them I know the next day was fixed. So I don't know if there was just a glitch with the curated titles and then the system not knowing to filter out ones that aren't available with licensing or whatever. Um, But there was a bit of a glitch there with that. Or the servers were just getting hammered. Could be that as well. Yeah. All right. So let's quickly talk before we wrap up here about what we've watched. I'll kick it all off with my quick list here that I've watched. Obviously, The Mandalorian will cycle back to that in a minute. I have watched both episodes of The World According to Jeff Goldblum and some miscellaneous nostalgia. I watched episode one of Boy Meets World. That uh, was <laughs> the one that I looked at. I'm like, wow, this title is very, very long, very long title. Intro, I've watched some Darkwing Duck and some Chippendale Rescue Rangers and some other random things that I randomly showed to the kids. Things that I'm really looking forward to, though, is really looking back on some of those movies that there are multiple versions that I've only seen one of. Uh, Speaking with the Christmas theme, for example, Miracle on 34th Street, both versions are in there. And I remember as a kid, there was the one version that was there, but my parents always talked about the older version. So I'm looking forward to sort of doing a little bit of comparing and contrasting. Of course, I also at some point have to go and watch The Sandlot because that's on there. (laughs) Such Uh, a good movie. How about you, Chris? Uh, Mandalorian episodes one and two. That goes without saying because that's predominantly why I ordered the service on day one. I've also watched the first two episodes of The World According to Jeff Goldblum because it was one of the other new things that had me intrigued. Then I also watched a short 14-minute 14-ish minute documentary in the Marvel category. It was Marvel Studios Expanding the Universe, where they started talking about what's coming in the future Disney Plus and Marvel movies. And what was cool is they started showing a bunch of the artwork off for concept art and things like that of what Winter Soldier and Falcon's uniforms are going to look like in their spinoffs. So there was some really cool concept art in there. I've also been re-watching Gargoyles because uh, it's one of the best cartoons out of the early 90s that Disney had. Gargoyles for Life. And there's also been a... Uh, a movement on Twitter because Greg Weissman, who was one of the showrunners on that, also a showrunner on Young Justice that was resurrected by people marathon streaming it, encouraging people to do the same with Gargoyles because if they can get enough people watching it, maybe Disney will bring it back for Disney+. And Keith David did say he'd return to do the voice of uh, Goliath, BT Dub. That's so cool. It might happen. Uh, I've also been watching the cartoon Recess, like I mentioned, because it's just something I enjoyed in the early 90s as a kid. Stuff I'm going to watch. Agent Carter season two, because I never actually watched it when it was on the air. So now I can finally watch it. Uh, There is a documentary on there called The Imagineering Story. That is the stories of the Imagineers over the decades at Disney and how they build the things they do at Disney World and Disneyland. And that's just fascinating to me. I'm going to continue watching The Mandalorian and the Jeff Goldblum series, of course. And I want to spin up one 
of the Star Wars flicks on there because it's the first time that I've seen any of these Star Wars movies available in 4K HDR Dolby Atmos, and that's on Disney+. Plus. You can't go and buy 4K discs for them in the stores right now, but if you subscribe to Disney+, Plus, you could go and watch, say, Empire Strikes Back and 4K HDR with Atmos sound. I'm intrigued. I am so glad that you just mentioned that right now because that clued me that I forgot to put on my list two of the things that you have told me that I should watch. And I've talked about time and time again. It's been hard for me to find up in Canada. Clone Wars and Rebels. That is definitely on there because I've not watched either of those. Sweet baby Jesus Rebels is great. Yeah, because the thing is, I never I think when Clone Wars was out. Uh, I didn't know the ways that people sometimes got it up in Canada and we didn't subscribe to Disney or the version of Disney at the time was terrible or whatever. And then when it was time for Rebels, it just was hard for me to find it anywhere. And so so I am so looking forward to finally watching these because you have talked them up so much as well as SP. How about you, Suncast? What are you going to be watching slash what have you watched? So far, I've watched a couple of things i haven't watched a whole lot um chris mentioned the imagineering story i've watched both episodes of that and then it's decent I, I've, I've known a lot about that stuff uh one interesting thing that i learned in the previous episode was that they had this uh facility or this division called mapo uh which was uh built on the profits of mary poppins and so the the story goes is that mapo is is named that after Mary Poppins, but it also stands for uh, manufacturing and production operations. So it's, it's, it's got a double meaning by calling it nice. Mapo, which is really interesting. I didn't know that before. A lot of stuff I've known about because I've watched a lot of Disney stuff on there. Uh, I just saw that Saving Mr. Banks is on there. That's a really good film that I've seen before. Uh, I also watched the first episode of The Mandalorian. That was all right. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, so... I watched it. I'll see. I'll watch the second episode. Maybe I'll get into it. Maybe I won't. I don't know. Um, and then I also kind of watched that Pixar in real life series, which was I kind of seen that yet. odd. And I'm not sure it was really worth watching. I, I, I watched like three minutes of it and it's only like a five or six minute thing. And it was just very odd the way it's done because, oh, mm-hmm. like the first episode they take that big console from the movie Inside Out. They build a real version of this. They stick it out into Central Park. And, you know, they have people discover it and start pressing buttons. And they actually have uh, actors that are just there in plain clothes. And then whenever somebody presses a button on console like happy or sad, the actors start changing their dialogue to match the, the emotion of whatever was pressed. But there's there's no narration. There's nothing. It's just, you know, a, a camera on the street that's recording this. There's no narration. You don't really get any setup to it. It's it's literally you see them coming up to a console and then it's just kind of very ambiguous and vague as far as what you're supposed to be understanding. And it's just kind of weird. But that's what I've watched. Um, definitely going to watch Tailspin. Definitely going to watch Rescue Rangers. There's a whole bunch of stuff on there that I still need to rediscover and and watch again. But definitely want to watch Tailspin because I I just remember, you know, back in the 90s, you know, coming home from school and watching Tailspin and whatever cartoons they had on in that time block, you know, right after school, the three, four o'clock time spot. 
It's like Tailspin Rescue Rangers, and it's just like, man, that's childhood right there. Let's yep. be honest, high up on your list, Suncast, is Lizzie McGuire, isn't it? I've watched it. <laughs> There's the not remake, but the continuation that's coming to Disney Plus next year, too. Mm-hmm. I do want to say weird. right now, though, from a, a visual quality perspective, putting bugs aside, in my opinion, they are miles ahead of Netflix and other streaming services at, in the higher quality titles. I yeah. was playing like, what was I playing last night? Which Avengers was it? Uh, no, I started playing Captain Marvel. That's what it was. And when you go to dark scenes, one of the reasons I always, always go and grab my Blu-ray unless I'm feeling ultra lazy instead of playing on Netflix is because of the fact that I hate that there are so much dark scenes in cinema right now that you stream it and you see the compression on Netflix. Even when you're on the highest quality, there was none of that in Captain Marvel as I started to play that last night. It was so clear, so great. And I was looking at it and I think uh, when I pulled up my panel on my router, that device, because it was on my fire stick, was using like between 20 and 30 megabits per yeah. second. It was it was so, quite nice. <laughs> so that's the trade-off is you'll get the pretty picture. And then at the end of the month, you'll look at your uh, how much data you've used and you go, oh, I'm right at that limit. I guess I shouldn't have watched Captain Marvel six times this month oh, or something like that. I got unlimited data for two years. No, you're good to go. <laughs> you know what's on there? Goof Troop. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes, and Goofy Movie, too. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts on this, anybody? I'll start with you, Chris. I'm not disappointed with buying the three-year deal, which basically gave it to me for like $3.50 a month. There is not a bunch of new original content yet. That is going to be the problem. If you wanted to subscribe to something to get a bunch of new original content, Disney Plus is not the place to be right now. But if you want a back catalog of things that you've really enjoyed, with some original content sprinkled in. That's what this is now. If you're wanting to see the new original stuff, wait about a year from now, and that's when they start to really open the valves, and you'll start seeing more of the Marvel and Star Wars stuff hit it, and you'll be pretty happy with it. But it's a great nostalgia trip for someone like me who's in my mid-30s who remembers watching a lot of the stuff that they have on here as a kid. I go, holy cow, I remember watching that. And then I find myself sucked into watching the X-Men cartoon for an hour, and I'm like, all my time go oh crap <laughs> yeah uh i will summarize right now before we go to you suncast and say i agree with chris uh the only thing that i want to highlight right now is that that plan was not available in canada so i am paying full value and that makes it a little harder <laughs> for me if i had that deal that you got where it worked out to like three bucks a month i would have been so happy to have bought the three years or whatever you bought I would have absolutely been totally satisfied at the full price. Makes you scratch your head a little. However, it does completely fill an, a gap that I had or a desire to fill a gap that I had with conventional TV and, and my kids. I will say that there is really no reason anymore between Netflix and this for my kids to watch conventional TV. Pretty much the only titles that we actually had sitting on the DVR have now been deleted for my kids because they're available on Disney+. Plus. There are several titles that they used to record on there, and now they're available on Disney+. Plus. So it's great. Both of them really quite like that. I really don't think that for a, a, a younger kid, there is any reason for them to watch conventional TV anymore. So that is where you can kind of justify that cost a little bit here if you can reduce something in your cable package. Suncast? Yeah, I think oh, a lot of what our complaints are, like I said, you know, 
are things that within th- six months I can see them easily fixing. It, it, it's minor stuff. One thing we didn't mention was there are some complaints about the aspect ratio of certain cartoons such as The Simpsons, and, and apparently Disney did respond and say that they are going to fix the aspect ratio of some of those shows. Uh, Aladdin was another one where people mentioned the aspect ratio was definitely not what they expected from it. So uh, hopefully they will fix this stuff. And a lot of this stuff, that a lot of, all these complaints really are fixable. They can fix this stuff. It's not something that's far out there that is like, oh, it's going to take this much work to fix this. But no, uh, I think overall they, they've done really well um, for, for something that they had so much hype and so much interest in. I think the problems were minor. Yes, there were some outages here and there and some technical glitches, but for as much interest as they had in this service and the demand and everything, I think they've hit a home run here. Well, and the other thing I think is really interesting to think about when you look at the variety of content and things like that is where it affects other things as well. Because even though there's those glitches and whatnot, you have the potential that it opens up your titles that you can watch at any given time and reduce costs elsewhere. Like I mentioned the cable thing, but also the thing that I thought about was I pay for the highest tier of Netflix right now because I can't do the tier down because of the fact that I've had it where I've been limited by devices because I have several devices in the house and sometimes the kids leave them playing or whatever. I got mm-hmm. tired of it. But if all of a sudden we ran into that problem, uh, maybe the kids are more interested in Disney Plus right now. And so then I can lower down that Netflix because there's such a broad catalog there. You might find if you do say have you know, your parents on your Netflix or whatever, and you run into that issue, maybe the Disney Plus, you're like, okay, well, I I, watch something on there instead. Uh, The other thing is that uh, original content. I am looking forward to them having more of that. But so far, so good. Mandalorian, so good. So good. And uh, even Jeff Goldblum uh, series, it's a very boring concept. It really is. It's a very, very boring concept on paper. It is amazingly entertaining. It works because it's Jeff Goldblum. Uh Uh-huh. That's exactly why it is. Yeah. So I I have a lot of faith with where they're going to go with their original content. If you've used Disney Plus or you got anything you want to chime in about, please do get in touch with us. But come by our Discord server, guineageek.com slash Discord. We have a bunch of people that talk geeky things and you can chat about this and walk through the things you like, the things you don't like. Or just get in on that recess rewatch that Chris is doing. You know you want to talk to him about it. I heard he's going to do a debrief after every episode. He's going to type out a full review at the Discord server. I was just going to make a podcast about it. That sounds easier. <laughs> and you should do it during your lunch break. Yeah. you should. Well, we'll put it on the GFQ network. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I'm sure there's a big demand for Chris's recess commentary podcast. Well, thank you very much, Suncast, for coming on here today. I do greatly appreciate you coming on here, especially with it being last minute. It sounds like we've all had some good experiences with Disney Plus, and we look forward to that day that the Suncast original production heads over to Disney Plus. I heard you've got a show that's going up there pretty soon, Suncast. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. Trust me. Anything that you want to plug or promote before you go, Suncast? Uh, be sure to check out gfqnetwork.com and also follow me on Twitter at Suncast. That's spelled S-U-N-K-A-S-T. Chris, anything you want to plug or promote? 
It is the final season of Arrow right now, which means we are wrapping up our run discussing Arrow on the Starling Tribune. So if you want to hear us talk about the end of Arrow, come check out the Starling Tribune Thursday nights, 7.30 p.m. at geeks.live. And I want to say right now that if you're not watching Arrow, uh, well, you're really late to the party. But if you've been a while since you've watched Arrow, this season has just been a joy to catch up with uh, for people. I think there's a lot of just good wandering down memory lane happening in this. And I think the crisis event is really leading to somewhere good. And hopefully it's to a better Supergirl because I just watched that episode last night and it's still rough, still very, very rough Supergirl. For shame, for shame. But that's going to go ahead and wrap it up. So for episode 310 of the officialgonnageek.com show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying Disney Plus you need to give us Canadians a deal. We want you to take our money. More money, but less per month. I'm Suncast, and I'm going to go binge watch Lizzie McGuire. I'm Chris Farrell, and I'm going to go binge watch some more Recess. Stay tuned for my Recess podcast. You should call it a Recess with Chris. <laughs> I like it. Bye. I like it. <laughs> for checking out another episode of the official gunnageek.com show if you like the show please give us a five-star review in apple podcasts or a thumbs up on youtube you can always join us for our live recording sessions which stream mondays at 8 45 p.m eastern at www.geeks.live and remember you can find our full back catalog at gunnageek.com forward slash show if you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.